You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Chers invités, bon après-midi et bienvenue au Centre mondial du pluralisme pour cet événement soulignant le 25e anniversaire du Toronto Centre intitulé Changement climatique, finance et développement. Dear guests, good afternoon and welcome to the Global Centre for Pluralism for this event entitled Climate Change, Finance and Development marking the Toronto Centre's 25th anniversary celebration. We have some great presenters and panelists for you today. Nous avons d'excellents panélistes et présentateurs pour vous aujourd'hui. Alors, sans plus tarder, j'aimerais inviter le chef de la direction du Toronto Centre. I'd like to invite the chief executive officer of the Toronto Centre, Mr. Babak Abbasadeh, for some opening remarks. Bon après-midi et bienvenue. Uh, nous sommes ravis d'être dans notre capitale nationale pour célébrer cet anniversaire d'argent, car c'est bien le gouvernement du Canada qui a eu la prévoyance de nous créer il y a 25 ans. I'd like to start by uh, uh, acknowledging His Excellency Ambassador Urban Alin of Sweden. Of course, we have the minister, which I will be saying a lot more about. Uh, a little bit later, and uh, representatives from the uh, High Commissions of Ghana, uh, Rwanda, uh, India, uh, Malaysia, and embassies of Costa Rica, Peru, Colombia, the Philippines. Uh, we have been privileged to work in your countries. We hope to continue to earn your trust. And also, I'd like to acknowledge my board members uh, and advisory board chairs who are here. They travel from different parts of Canada and actually around the world. And a big thanks to our staff uh, at Toronto Centre who worked so hard. Looks like my job is easy. I'm just thanking. One more thank you here. I would like to thank the government of Canada and our other founders and funders, the World Bank, the Schulich School of Business, IMF, and of course, the government of Sweden. La Mission de Toronto Centre est alignée avec la politique d'aide internationale féministe au Canada. Since establishment in 1998, we have trained more than 20,000 regulators from 190 countries and territories to build more stable, sound, and inclusive financial systems where citizens can save, borrow, make payments, and insure themselves, which ultimately is critical for closing the gender and equity gaps in achieving sustainable development. Building stable and inclusive financial systems underpins peace and security, protects the international rule of law, and promotes democratic institutions. Let me pause here for a second to show you a video to denote our accomplishments. Uh, born out of the Asian financial crisis, um, and really pioneering work um, and, and pioneering spirit that uh, persists to this day uh, in terms of frontier issues around financial stability. My 
uh, appreciation for the Toronto Centre goes back a long way to my days as uh, leading a provincial regulator. We relied heavily on the Toronto Centre to train our supervisors. Moved to OSFI, we used uh, we used the Toronto Centre services there too. We were we were part of the team delivering and and receiving the training. Um, and now in my capacity at the bank, and then internationally, my time as the Secretary General for the Basel Committee, um, I was really proud to see how strong the Toronto Centre's international reputation was. So there aren't many organizations in the world that train the really important skill of financial supervision. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a real blessing and a source of pride for us to have one homegrown here in Canada. You've made an invaluable contribution to supporting supervisors from around the world as they seek to improve people's lives, especially in emerging market and developing economies. I took an early interest in promoting gender as, as a key issue in supervision, and that was quite bold. But the Turner Centre is mainstreaming that, and it's not just talking about it, but it's actually raising uh, a cater of supervisors um, that are beginning to get aware. And so on behalf of the Pensions and Insurance Authority, I wish to thank the Toronto Centre for the opportunity rendered to us to benefit from the various capacity building engagements. And so we want to wish the Toronto Centre a 25th anniversary. In my opinion, it represents an important Canadian approach that can work abroad in addressing future crises. I believe in the Toronto Centre then, and I do so strongly today. Maybe I should stop now because we're pretty ahead, right? Can't really beat that, but I'm, I hope you recognize some of the familiar faces there. The financial system is constantly evolving with new threats. Derivatives and credit default swaps, it fits you some of my younger staff, I've never heard of those, are replaced today with fintech, crypto assets, and escalating climate risk. Geopolitical uncertainties, cybercrime, the erosion of human rights, and the spread of disinformation are some of today's modern threats, all of which put stress on financial stability and are a barrier to building inclusiveness. Toronto Centre always stands ready to help. About a month ago, we conducted a crisis management training program for our colleagues at the National Bank of Ukraine, and I might add our brave colleagues, in collaboration with the Central Bank of Sweden and Canada's Deposit Insurance Corporation. The flip side of risk is opportunity. Our long-term capacity building has helped Costa Rica and Colombia exceed to the OECD. Our work in Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean, and the ASEAN region are all examples of the importance of building local capacity in inclusive and resilient financial supervision. In 2016, Toronto Centre began incorporating climate risk in our programming, well before standard setters and other international institutions. We did this because we are on the front lines with developing nations and we could see the implications of global financial stability and the risk of crisis from climate change. We are collaborating with the Network for Greening the Financial System and the International Sustainability Standards Board. At COP27, we heard a dire warning. We're on a highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator. 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine, itself financed by the sale of Russian gas, has unsettled the global energy market, spurred inflation, and led calls for more drilling of fossil fuels. Poor countries facing existential climate threats due to historical global emissions of developed nations pushed for the agreement to establish a loss and damage fund to compensate for irreparable harm. Our distinguished panel will help us understand the intersection of climate, development, and finance in this transition. Dr. Stefan Ingves is the governor of the Central Bank of Sweden and the chair of Toronto Center. Sokoro Heisen is the superintendent of banks, insurance, and pensions sector of Peru and a board member of Toronto Center. Paul Sampson is the CEO of CG, and our senior moderator, Marie-Lucie Morin, is the former Deputy Minister for International Trade and Executive Director at the World Bank. You have received their bios. And finally, it is my pleasure to introduce the Honorable Hajit Sajan, the International Minister of International Development, who will deliver brief remarks and has graciously agreed to join our panel discussion. I expect most people in this room know the minister, but not everyone. Before Mr. Sajan became an elected member of parliament, he was Lieutenant Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel with the Canadian military and put his life on the line during three tours of duty in Afghanistan. His commitment to democracy and to the betterment of women and girls is without question. I cannot begin this event without thanking Minister Sajan for your service to Canada. I found an old news story where the minister recounted his days gathering intelligence for Canada and our allies in Afghanistan. He frustrated the Taliban's efforts in recruiting young men by addressing the source of the problem. Guess what? Money. Interesting that uh, paying young Afghan men to partake in legitimate work building infrastructure had multiple benefits and was essential to creating some stability. The minister may not know it, but what you did there is a micro example of the importance that financial oversight plays in building inclusive, stable, and democratic countries. Thank you, Minister, for joining our celebration today. I'll hand the podium over to you. Thank you very much for the uh, uh, very kind introduction. It's actually um, it's quite a privilege for me to be here. It's always an opportunity for, for me to learn. Your Excellencies, thank you for, all, uh, for being here. Um, before I begin, I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe people. And the example that um, that that was given from Afghanistan was uh, wasn't a surprise for me, uh, to be honest, because uh, one of the other things I used to work on is here in Va uh, in Vancouver, BC, was in Gang Squad, and you know kids make poor choices, uh, and um, uh, because they think they can achieve something. So when you give somebody an opportunity to to succeed, uh, they make the right choices. And when we saw the, uh, some of the parallels, we found that uh, uh, it, it was not not about ideology; it was actually about jobs. Uh, and I remember one. If you give me one example, we were in a patrol with one of the deputy commanders of the brigade going into an area, and the poppy harvesting season was going on. And I remember the colonel uh, asked one of the the people, "Why are, why are you doing that?" He goes, "If you can pay me more." 
um, uh, than what I'm getting right now, I would happy to do something else. So it comes down to it creates up economic opportunity and a lot of the work that all of you do is extremely important. I'll get into that um, 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 afterwards. Uh, so it, it really is a great pleasure for me here uh, to be with uh, friends and partners from the Toronto Centre, um, uh, especially Stefan, who's chair of the uh, Centre for Board of Directors and the governor of the Central Bank of Sweden. Um, we had a great conversation earlier uh, uh, as well, got to learn more about what the Toronto Centre uh, does. And hopefully we're going to have some um, uh, do some more work to, uh, together. And now with 2023 fast approaching, uh, I want to congratulate um, um, all of you uh, for, for your 25th anniversary. And now this is a significant milestone. And the video that was shown, I'm sorry, I don't even compare uh, to the speakers um, uh, who, who were, spoke before me. So the Toronto Centre has built a solid international reputation, something that you you know all of you should be extremely proud of. You have made an important contribution to the financial stability in more than 190 countries, something I was really impressed with, and by training over 20,000 officials who have benefited from your programs. Now, since 1998, the Toronto Centre has been an important partner of the government of Canada in building stable, reliable, and uh, inclusive financial systems worldwide. Now, that aligns with our Feminist International Assistance Policy, which aims to build a more inclusive, sustainable, and prosperous world. Now, ultimately, though, that benefits the poorest and the most marginalized people, especially women and girls. We all want to see economic growth that works for everyone in a world where everyone has uh, access to good, decent jobs that help people to make their lives and their communities better. That's why I was very pleased to hear the Toronto Centre has recently established a leadership program for women financial supervisors and regu regu uh, regulators in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, this will give women leaders uh, the competency, competencies they need to be uh, uh, vital in, a, in, in ensuring financial sectors are stable and well-managed and that they serve uh, all members of society. And the Toronto Centre provides an avenue uh, for the Canadian government uh, to promote sound, inclusive financial systems in emerging markets and developing countries. Now, in fact, I was thinking about this actually just yesterday at the launch of our Indo-Pacific um, uh, strategy uh, in Vancouver with my colleagues, that Asia is a very important uh, emerging market in the world, uh, and especially for Canada. We are a Pacific nation. Our partner countries have told us that sharing Canadian expertise and enabling infrastructure investments that support climate resilience will help support inclusive economies, um, address climate change, and deepen our bilateral relationships. Now, our work with the Toronto Centre is one uh, of the ways that we are helping middle-class, uh, middle-income countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam to achieve inclusive and sustainable growth. Now, we kept, now whether it's climate change or the sustainable development goals or inclusive trade, what happens there, and they have a direct impact on Canadians. So I want to also recognize the Toronto Centre's uh, work in helping financial regulators and supervisors, supervisors to adapt to the climate uh, change realities. Now, from the pandemic uh, to the effects of the Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine and the increasing number of extreme weather events, financial sectors must be prepared. There is no doubt that the Toronto Centre contributes to building stable, reliable, inclusive financial systems worldwide. And by delivering innovative and customized, customized capacity programs to supervisors, regulators and central bankers that address the world's most pressing issues, you are making a difference. Now, today's discussion uh, contributes, uh, contributes to these goals. 
Uh, and so I look forward to being um, on this panel. And now I will turn it over to the moderator. Thank you very much for those uh, excellent words, uh, Minister. It's very good to see you again. Uh, congratulations on the launch of the Indo-Pacific Strategy. Uh, I really look forward to uh, its execution. And Babak, congratulations on 25 years. Terrific. Uh, when Babak phoned me and he asked me to moderate this session today, I said, Babak, I'm not a specialist of these issues, but I love the Toronto Centre. And when I was at the World Bank, I had the pleasure to work very closely with you and your team. And if the mission and the vocation was important then, because I left the bank already nine years ago, it's even more important today. So that's why I accepted. So uh, we're in for a treat. We're going to have a structured conversations uh, today so that we can cover uh, a broad spectrum of issues. And uh, I will not reintroduce our distinguished panelists, Minister being one of four. Um, so I will begin by turning uh, to you, uh, Stefan. Central banks and uh, regulators uh, in Europe, in Canada, in Sweden, most certainly, have uh, over the last few years developed uh, climate scenario analyses and, and stress tests. You've been working together with the industry, which is really important. And I noticed in the process of becoming an expert for this panel, Bebek, that the feds have even announced that they themselves are gonna launch a, a pilot project now. They announced this at the end of uh, September, I believe working with six of the very large uh, financial institutions in the US. So can you share with us uh, tonight what lessons learned are there to draw from what you've been doing, either in Sweden or you've been observing, obviously, the ECB? Um, are we on the course to meeting net zero, or is it still a very steep climb? <laughs> well. That's hard to tell. That's hard to tell, but it's obvious, given what's going on in, in, in the world presently, that banks, or more broadly the financial sector, has a lot to learn because this is not something that has been a lot of focus on in the past, and there will be a steep uh, climb uh, when it comes to dealing with uh, dealing with this. And probably it would be dangerous to use just a wait and see approach. So. A need for some learning by doing uh, when it comes to all of all of uh, all of this because this is relevant both for the banks themselves and for regulators and it depends on if you're a bank or let's say an insurance company it's obvious if you 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 are, are an insurance company that if you don't know what's going on then you're gonna have a problem down, uh, down the road mm -hmm. but at the same time when it comes to doing this type of work we need to be mindful of the fact that stress testing the way we think about stress testing when you are sort of on the technical side is basically is, is based on time series, stuff that has happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And here we don't have time series. So here you have to make your own assumptions and you have to get used to this idea that this is not something where you can look, you know, 100 years back and things like that. So here you have to do uh, something in a different way. And you also probably have to assume that some of the events that we're heading into will be more uh, severe and more frequent than in the past. 
but we just don't have the empirical knowledge as of uh, as of yet. But still, you have to you have to do this, and in some instances, you also have to work with a longer time horizon than we than what we normally do. So, what is it that we can do then? First of all, focus on transparency. You better tell others what you are doing, whether it's good or bad. It doesn't really matter. The transparency needs to be there. Transparency and disclosure goes basically hand in hand in the sense that you need to tell others what you are doing. And you need supervisory reporting. And the supervisors actually need to understand what kind of reports they receive because otherwise it just won't, uh, just won't work. And you need to think about the prudential treatment when you deal with these types of issues. All of the, all these things are sort of new to everybody, so there's a lot of homework uh, that we have ahead of us dealing, dealing with this so that we really, really uh, imply, uh, understand. And, in the, and this is all still the early days. What we really talk about is compliance with disclosure and compliance, but then that raises the issue compliance with what? And that you need to uh, that you need to understand, and then of course it gets very very uh, technical, and you need to get the information, and then of course people argue back and forth whether the information is right, wrong, or you need to get some other type of information. But still, you need to start from somewhere, and then if you start from somewhere, you need to think about how you design the information that is uh, that is available available there. And that's, these are sort of important things. It will take probably several years to do them, and you need to get to some kind of an agreement on how to standardize all of these things. And if it is done properly, then ideally you get to a situation where we're not talking about greenwashing, when we're actually talking about doing some serious work in this, in this field, so that we account for what is going on properly. Thank you, Stefan. Inevitably, tonight we're going to be talking about COP27. So I'm turning uh, to you, uh, Socorro, to say that some aspects, of course, of managing climate risk is the same in developing countries and developed countries, but some aspects are not the same very clearly. So at COP, there were a lot of discussions around the possibility of creating a $500 billion fund at the IMF, uh, which could constitute um, SDRs, essentially, that would be accessible by emerging uh, economies to help withstand the transition costs. Um, I guess the question for you is, um, is it possible for Peru or other developing countries to do it on their own, on your own, or is it important to have in place a mechanism such as the one that was discussed? Thank you for the question. <laughs> um, well, the short answer is no. Um, but uh, let me elaborate a little bit. Uh, first of all, most countries that are affected by climate change have uh, very little responsibility in generating climate change, and also very little ability to move the needle towards uh, net zero. Um, so for instance, Peru is uh, responsible for about 0.35% of the annual CO2 emissions, but we are among the 10 most vulnerable countries uh, uh, affected by, by climate change. 
And the transition to uh, net zero is going to be a long process. We are all hopeful that uh, it's going to get shortened, that decisions are going to be made to make this, the process shorter. But no matter what, it's going to be a, a long process. And in the meantime, many developing nations are already suffering the costs of climate change. Um, and affected countries are already spending scarce resources to repair some of the consequences of climate change. Uh, resources that are needed for the other development objectives, like uh, basically increasing the standards of living of population by trying to increase productivity, requires big reforms on education, health systems, infrastructure, and things like that. So basically, all the help that can be given is welcome in this area. Uh, help to assist them in repair the effects of climate change, but also help to adapt to this transition period and to make the country and the people, the population, more resilient to the effects of uh, climate change. Um, to this, basically, we have to be very conscious that not all the countries are the same. So one suit does not fit all. And basically, we need to be creative. We need comprehensive solutions. And different funds that are being planned will complement each other. Uh, Funds like uh, loss and repair funds, funds like uh, low interest financing, uh, speed funds that are needed in emergency situations. And, and I think the IMF uh, solution or fund uh, could fit this latter uh, uh, case. Uh, the IMF is perfectly capable of providing funds fast and at lower than market rates. And I think it, it will depend on how it's structured, of course, and, and, and how soon it can be put in place, because basically it's, it's urgent. We need it yesterday. Sure. And uh, so basically that's my take on the question. Thank you for that. So um, <coughs> Paul, uh, we can look at the last COP, last half full, last half empty. We've all read the multiple articles going into COP, coming out of COP. Um, but Socorro mentioned it. There was a breakthrough. After a lot of wrangling, countries came together around the creation of a fund for loss and damage. Now, the multi-thousand dollar question for you is, should we be hopeful that it will actually be put into place, finance, and execute. Well, thanks very much, and an honor to be here tonight, for sure. Um, so let me answer that question by just providing a little bit of context first about this loss and damage fund that was set up. And I think it's interesting when you think that it's now been over 30 years of negotiations since the framework convention was started in the early late 80s early 90s i think it was ratified in mid in 1994 um, there were calls for a loss and damage fund or something similar back in those days particularly by the small island states but the decision at that time was to frame the framework uh, convention around mitigation and adaptation and the issue of 
you know, reparations or, or some kind of compensation was left off the table. So it's finally arrived. So I think point one is to say that conceptually, this is actually a pretty big deal, right? Like what, regardless of where it will go, and let's unpack that in a moment, it is now part of that framework. So you've got mitigation, you've got adaptation, and you've got loss and damage. And they're, they're all related, of course, but it is now there. So the next point would be to say, okay, well, how is climate financing gone so far? And people would often look at the 2019 Copenhagen commitment, which was to get to a point of $100 billion a year by 2020. Um, the OECD has tracked this carefully, and the 2020 report came out at $83 billion. So not bad, actually, not, you know, a glass fairly full. Um, when you unpack that $83 billion number, a lot of it came from countries directly, so bilateral support through programs like Minister Sejan would be responsible for, multilateral development banks, a little bit from export credits, and then a little bit from the private sector. I think the private sector number is probably around 10 billion of the 83. So, it, but the bottom line is it didn't meet the 100, right? And so there was a discussion at this COP about recasting that $100 billion commitment to a new number that will be negotiated for 2025, I understand, and a bigger number. Now that number could be quite a bit bigger because the, the estimates out there are, are really all over the map, but a lot of them get into the trillions of dollars as opposed to 100 billion per year. So where will this go in terms of the loss and damage fund? Um, I think uh, there, there will be an opportunity to build resiliency for climate change, I think, through a lot of programs, which is already being done through poverty reduction programming and things. So I think there's an opportunity to perhaps build more into the climate fund through that. The multilateral development banks, as we just heard the IMF example, have a lot of scope. But the last point I would make is probably on the private sector side, right? So the 10 billion, how will that ramp up? Um, Mark Carney was speaking at the beginning there there was an initiative launched in, in Glasgow called the, the GFANS, I think it's uh -huh. called the, the, the Glasgow Financial um, uh, Commitment Group. I've forgotten the, for net zero, I've forgotten exactly what the, what the, the letters stand for. Um, and that is holding companies to account both in terms of transparency, of what kind of investments are they making, is it climate friendly, is it green? And then the other side of that, I think, is getting companies to step up more and, and come in with financing. So I think that's going to be an important part of where this goes. The loss and damage fund will be competing for funding, but it is now there as part of the framework. Thank you, Paul. Paul Minister, uh, it was mentioned tonight uh, that the Toronto Centre was created uh, I wouldn't say as a result of, but following the Asian financial crises. Because at the time, there was a realization that um, even then, a crisis of that magnitude had an impact everywhere in the world. And since then, we've just accumulated global crises, really. And now we're here tonight talking about climate, which is, of course, absolutely global in its scope. Yet, there is reluctance on the part of certain parties, on the part of citizens at times, to really um, go the extra mile and support uh, 
you know, more financing, for instance, for developing countries on climate. And that spirit, I would ask you, Minister, how would you present the topic? What would you say to Canadians who today may still be reluctant, really, to support mitigation and adaptation financing? Um, well, thank you very much for that, that question. And this is something that uh, I reflect on quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I simply say is either you pay now or you pay a thousandfold later on. Um, <laughs> simple as that. It's, uh, and we see this already. Uh, the, how many things that we are f having to pay for now if we had looked at them doing things differently early on would have been far less. And the climate, uh, the, the disaster that we see uh, before us is one area that we really need to make sure that we invest in. And uh, um, I was in Pakistan to, to visit the, the affected flood areas. Mm. Um, and again, Pakistan is another country where, you know, they're very small emitters. Um, but now they're having to deal with the impact um, of the floods. So. We're already putting funding in. The money that normally would not have gone into those areas could have gone somewhere somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So that's one area. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that uh, India has been also leading discussion um, at, at COP27 when it comes to uh, the compensation. It'll be interesting to see how this goes towards their leading of uh, the G20. Um, I've already, when I was in Egypt, and I'm already actually I'm heading to the UAE, to look at the discussions that when they take over the leadership uh, for, for COP, uh, in COP28. We need to start changing our uh, narrative around this. We, this is imperative that we do this. If we don't, this is gonna impact our livelihoods. At we're, we're, we don't have that predictability that we used to have before. It, we, you know, the, uh, I'm no expert on when it comes to the financial systems, but one thing I do know is that predictability is important. And from COVID to uh, disaster after the climate disaster is getting extremely uh, uh, challenging. So what we need to be able to explain to Canadians, and most of them get it, and that uh, we, uh, you know, the funds that we put in now are going to be extremely important. And, we're, and but we need to explain also what's what's taking place. I think Canadians are, are extremely generous. They want us to respond. But the conversation that what, what we've been trying to do in, uh, in global affairs is trying to turn that around. Imagine if we prevented. That's an area, I'll be honest with you, we haven't really talked a lot about. Uh, and I come more from the security background uh, as well. But the reason I'm in development, because if we do, like uh, international development is constant prevention, right? And if anybody, we knew that climate, uh, uh, we call it climate security, the climate impact was actually increasing conflict. And I can show you where uh, you pick a conflict where people were going hungry, had to make difficult choices that led to other things that all of a sudden now we're doing a full-blown uh, uh, security operation in many par parts of the world. So when we explain this, I think for, uh, for Canadians and many people around the world, they get it. And in, in vulnerable countries, they especially um, uh, get, get, get this. So I think there, it's, it's, a, it's a responsibility for all of us. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not going to go too hard on people when they, when they say, why wouldn't we spend money uh, somewhere else? Because, you know, they're looking at their own families um, as well. It's, 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 not, it's not easy. I mean, why would we spend more money somewhere else? Because no one has explained to them that if we don't focus on other places, that you're the cost for your, uh, for, for your fuel. 
for your food is going up because of the other things that are dealt with. We're all interconnected um, uh, in this way. So I think we have some work to do uh, in this regard. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of hope. When we think that things are getting more difficult, COVID has shown us that when we band together internationally, we can make a, make a difference. So I, I think there's a lot of hope, even with the challenges that we uh, see before us. Um, but it's all if we, if we act very aggressively. And we will. Thank you, Minister. Um, Stefan, back to you. So building climate resilience in Northern Europe, of course, is not the same as, let's say, in Kenya, Ghana, or in Asia. Um, the Network for Greening Financial System uh, has done some really interesting work, but I think we can agree that more can be done. So the question for you is, um, how can central banks, within their mandate, obviously, can use their tools to integrate sustainability objectives on their balance sheet? Well, first of all, I mean, the issue is where do central banks or where show up in all of this or where, where do central banks, what, what is it that we could, can, can do? First of all, I mean, central banks are part of society, so we're not sort of completely isolated over there in one corner, only talking about the policy rate up or down. Uh, and that means that when you're a part of society, you need to understand what is going on in the rest of the society. And from that angle and from that perspective, it's on us central bankers to understand, follow, and think about uh, what is going on around us, because eventually at the end of the day, that will also affect monetary policy in one form or the other. And, and that, so we need to understand what is going, uh, what, what is going on, uh, on there. But then, I mean, that's kind of sounds very much like an, abstra an abstraction. But what is not an abstraction is that central banks actually need to have balance sheets. And that means that you have both assets and, 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 and liabilities. And on the asset side, in my case, we have foreign exchange reserves. And then we have also domestic, uh, domestic assets. When it comes to uh, foreign exchange reserves, we have actually sold some of the assets coming from parts of the world where they produce a lot of hydrocarbons. That wasn't always appreciated, uh, but that's what we did. And this is a tiny, tiny thing, but at least it's sort of kind of a symbol. And then when it comes to the corporate, uh, our, our domestic assets, the Swedish chrono denominated assets, what we have done there since we happened to hold a portfolio of, of corporate bonds uh, that we ended up buying um, at, the, uh, at the beginning of the, uh, of the pandemic. There we have basically uh, introduced a new criterion uh, demanding that if we hold those types of bonds, we only hold them if those corporations can actually report what they are doing on the climate, climate side. And they're expected to report this according to what is called a scope one and scope two. I'm not gonna go into, into the technical details, but basically we're trying to follow whatever standards are out there. And again, I mean, this is not maybe a major step when it comes to taking uh, changing, changing things, but it's a signal saying that we are mindful of this and, and we will only buy these uh, types of um, financial instruments if you factor global warming into what you are doing. 
in one uh, one form or the other. So these are sort of two tiny, two not two small steps moving this in 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 a direction which we feel is uh, the correct one. And we are based. What we do is also based on the climate-related financial disclosure disclosure standard. So we are trying to sort of show that if somebody else is producing the technical background that you need in order to define what you are doing, we will use those standards and then we'll sort of say that if we buy things and things end up on, on our balance sheet, this is what we will do in order to keep an eye on what is, uh, what is going on uh, there. Now, is the right way or wrong way, uh, time will tell, but it certainly has forced us to start thinking about these things in a way which is quite different compared to, let's say, four or five years ago, because then I'm pretty sure that if somebody had showed up and said, well, Stefan, you, know, you, you, start, you need to start thinking about climate change, you probably would have said that somebody else's business. Mm -hmm. And in, in that sense, th things have really, uh, really changed. Mm -hmm. So it's probably uh, fair uh, to say, and Stefan's alluded to that, that uh, supervis supervisory authorities and central bank are still learning by doing, in a way, in this area. And that, um, in your instance, for instance, capacity building on climate risk, uh, remains no doubt a, a priority. So I guess my question is, um, could you share with us what you, your institution uh, is doing, how you're addressing climate risk while maintaining as well, of course, a focus on financial in inclusion and very importantly, financial stability? Okay. Uh, well, learning by doing, that's exactly what what we, we have to be doing. And, uh, and we're getting used to it because in this fast changing world, we are learning by doing many things. And uh, we had the pandemia, we were forced to learn by doing and how to administer and manage the financial risks that were derived from the pandemia. And then we have cybersecurity and we are involved in an issue of which we have to do learning by doing. And now we have climate risk and, and it's the same thing uh learning by doing in all of it so we're getting used to it uh, what have we done well first we have uh, since we have scarce resources and as you said this competes with uh, core core missions of the superintendency and shorter term uh, priorities uh, leading uh, strengthening financial supervision and to ensure financial stability and all sorts of other issues that i mentioned before like cybersecurity and the after effects of the pandemic, uh, we have appointed a, a small group of people. I mean, they're small, energetic, very motivated on these issues and climate risk. And, and they are working this uh, aspect with us. Uh, and as, as Stefan uh, mentioned before, you cannot do anything without information. So the first step is gather information and gathering information implies uh, understanding the problem, gathering information from all, all sorts of sources available. And then uh, we have uh, the, the first uh, win, I, I, I guess, that we have gotten is that we, a couple of weeks ago, we issued the first uh, 
in our, we have a financial stability report that we, we produce every six months, and we have done that for a fairly long number of years. But this is the first time that in the financial stability report we include stress tests on climate risk, and I want to uh, tone down a little bit what I said, because this is not stress tests on climate risk. This is stress tests on a very, very specific aspect. Uh, of, of, of climate risk, which is with the one that we could find information for and was available to us. Um, and it is credit risk, the credit risk impact of floods and droughts on the financial system. So it's very narrow. We used uh, information that we, ha what we, we had. We use a forecast of 30 years and top-down approach and we did a sector by sector and district by district analysis. So we could identify the, the pain, the, the areas in which there was more impact and more pain on credit risk uh, in, because of floods or droughts in Peru. Uh, some other countries have done that before. Uh, that is the, the first little step that we have taken. Of course, we have to keep on working and broaden um, the scope of, this, of, the, of the tests. The next, the next step for us is going to be uh, ocean temperatures and the fishing industry, right. and also credit risk, ocean temperatures, fishing industry. That's a second. Uh, uh, and then we will have insurance sector. And then also, then you have well, floods, droughts, ocean, o uh, ocean temperatures, and the insurance sector. How is it affected? So. Those are the things that we can gather enough information. Then you have all sorts of other costs associated with climate risk and climate change that we don't have any clue of how to model yet, and that's, that's going to have be a long time. The transition costs, the, the policy changes that are going to affect the industries, how are they going to affect sectors like mining or other sectors that are uh, generating CO2 and how is that in turn going to affect the financial system so this is this is a whole new area that we are, we still don't know how to uh, uh, test so that's that's the first thing then then we have all in, in other sectors we have another uh, some other progress regarding regulation on pension funds or more more, more than regulation uh, guidelines on, on pension funds uh, in which they are uh, strongly encouraged to use ESG considerations when choosing their portfolio of assets. And, and, and I say strongly uh, encouraged because it's not mandatory. They, they will, ch at, at this stage at least, we have not considered to make it mandatory. They, it is totally voluntarily, but they have to disclose whether they are doing it or not, and if not, they have to explain why. Hmm. So that is one one aspect we have done. It. We have done it with pension funds because they are the biggest institutional investors in Peru. But then we can see what are we going to do with? Can we do this similar with uh, banks and insurance companies, which have smaller uh, in uh, uh, portfolios, but still they are very important. Uh, so that's the next, uh, the next step. And then other activities that we do uh, that are also relevant, I think, is uh, financial education. 
Uh, and financial education works uh, to the extent that you can help people understand and, and, and address their needs and plan for their own resiliency as a family, as a, as a small business, as a person. Um, and also financial inclusion works it for the same for the same reasons i mean having including more people to have a deposit account allows them to plan for the future and to buy some something or or, or having an insurance to get some protection against some risks that they could be facing so financial inclusion financial education are also major avenues that Protect, protect people not only from climate risk, but from all other sorts of risks that they are, they are uh, exposed to. Thank you, Socorro. So Paul, we're back at COP27. <laughs> you get the sticky wickets tonight. <laughs> there, there's a very clear message from the chair of the African Union. As he uh, says, quite bluntly, that as a result of the uh, commitments on climate from Glasgow and beyond, um, financing for the much needed gas projects throughout uh, Africa are becoming not only incredibly difficult to secure, but also extraordinarily expensive. So, he makes the argument that Africa is now finding itself on the front lines of climate uh, impact, as we all know, um, and also on the front line of transition uh, risks as far as uh, infrastructure needed uh, to combat poverty and improve the lot of citizens are concerned. It's a very complex issue, um, but since you have worked so long in development um, and have looked at these issues from a policy perspective, what are your thoughts on this uh, challenge? Thank you. I mean, I think it is one of the biggest challenges getting to net zero, right? So a net zero scenario where you have some places where emissions would have increased a little bit, but a lot of places where they've gone down, right? So there's there's an interesting partnership that has first started in Glasgow and then now was confirmed and Government of Canada just announced something on this, Prime Minister, last week. It's called the, the Just Energy Transition Partnerships, right? And the first one was launched last year in South Africa. And one was just announced in Indonesia, which Canada was part of, um, is part of. And there are ones planned for Senegal, Indonesia, Vietnam, and I think a couple of other countries. They're, they're trying to move those countries from coal, new coal-fired power generation to greener alternatives. In some cases, this could be natural gas, it could be something else. Um, that's hugely expensive. It's difficult to do. And it's also an investment that once you've built such a facility, it's around for 30 or 40 years. So it's actually urgent in the sense of making those decisions soon. So this will be critical. I think that's one part of the answer is that the, the G7, I should have noted, has said they're committed to this partnership. So they're all in. 
which is a significant amount of money, and other countries have come in from the EU, perhaps others will join it, because you're talking about serious dollars here. So that's happening. I think another thing that the EU has been particularly looking at is the transition relating to energy and digitization. And there you can make the energy grid that much smarter by, by kind of getting it fully digitized. And in many cases in developing countries, you could help with the digitization uh, infrastructure of the country. So there may be something there as well to link to broader development issues. Um, I think the next thing that's important here is creative financing, I would say, right? There's so much to be done. I think there's two tracks there. One was the G20 commissioned a report, an independent report on multilateral development bank financing. I think, I think technically it's called um, capital adequacy. And, and that is how, what are the current balance sheets of the multilateral development organizations and are they, do they have the right risk profile? Given the risks of climate, is not the risk appetite due for a little bit of a shift? Now, ultimately, that rests in the hands of the governments, right? To decide that that risk appetite is appropriate to shift because it's not without risk in itself. The banks themselves tend to be quite conservative on these things, right? Wanting to maintain their robust balance sheets. So that's something that's going to play out as well. And I think the, the multilateral development banks will have a, like a critical role here to, to bridge some of the financing to these more expensive projects, but much better climate impacts, uh, climate outcomes. Um, and, and again, the private sector that I mentioned earlier, the blended finance that they can be involved in if the conditions are right, if the incentives are there, more private money will come in. So again, that's an important role. The final thing that I would say on this point, and it's a tough one, is that there are trade-offs and, and tough choices to be made, right? In some countries where if the only option is one of uh, fossil fuel-based electricity generation, the country may be pushing hard for that, and it may be difficult to say no. In, for financing the multilateral development bank context, right? To the, to the point I think that the African Union would make as well is don't price us out on these transition projects, but also don't shut the door if there's absolutely no alternative. So that will mean that there need to be further reductions made elsewhere to this net zero future. So I'd leave it there, thanks. Thank you very much, Paul. And finally, to you, Minister. Um, you have a very complex portfolio when I look at all the development issues ahead of us today, right? Hopefully we've uh, turned the corner on the pandemic, uh, but we have to deal with the uh, consequences now, right? I mean, the pandemic has had a very harsh impact on developing countries. We know that, uh, particularly on education, health systems, uh, on women and girls. Um, we've been set back in terms of development gains, poverty uh, reduction, and now we have, you've mentioned it, this terrible war with potentially huge impacts on food security uh, across the world. Um, energy, I won't go on about energy prices. Um, Everything is interconnected and increasingly complex. Um, so, Minister, 
what gives you hope that we can meet these challenges of the day? Um, you know, I am, I've been in very difficult situations, but um, I always find that uh, when good people come together from around the world, and, and I sincerely mean this, it's not just a kind of a buzzword, that the human beings have the capacity uh, to do extraordinary things. We just saw that during, uh, during this pandemic. The, uh, we've been dealing with what, let's put it this way, I mean, remember before even the pandemic, we would, we would do scenarios on what's, uh, something would happen, but what's the likelihood of this really happening? And it's low. So you kind of just said, so you don't prepare for it. But the thing is now, we got to take that out of our vocabulary. What those things we were saying, what we thought the likelihood of something happening, it's happening continuously. So we have to work that into uh, what we're doing. And I think it should motivate us on, on to move e even faster. Uh, and I think uh, what we were able to accomplish during uh, COVID does give me hope. I was disappointed. Um, sadly, we, you know, we even in our own country benefited from the vaccines where the global south did not. And that needs to change. And so now, for example, the funding that we're putting into place is not just getting vaccines out. We're actually accelerating our work on reinforcing health systems. How do we learn from some of the mistakes that we made? So now we get into food security crisis. And the food security crisis was already there. Um, the Russian uh, war has uh, exasperated things even worse. So what gives me hope is that, um, I'll, give you, uh, I'll just use a few examples. When we had the famine crisis some time ago, some of the investments Canada and other nations had, had, had made uh, are, are, had made, are making things better now. It's, it's not that great, obviously, but if, if some of the research that uh, we invested in about 18, 19 years ago, uh, things would be even worse. So right now, I've visited places like in Nairobi where we have research, uh, research centers on uh, uh, beans that are more nutritious, um, uh, uh, drought-resistant uh, seeds, uh, and, and we're utilizing um, this work. Then, I mean, uh, uh, fertilizers that don't take as much uh, chemical base, right? Uh, alternative uh, sources of food for livestock. All these things are, are being done, but what we need to do now is all this great innovation is we need to supersize it. We need, just like when we were looking for anything that out there during for COVID, how we're gonna deal with, you know, if this research could it work. And look, we were able to come up very quickly. Right now we have this. I, th I think the answers are all there, to be honest. We just need to really accelerate things and work greater coordination to the work that we're doing. So I'll give me an example of what there's some, um, uh, optimism and some concern as we kind of go through. So food security crisis. As we have this food security crisis, we're also at the same time wanting to talk about making people's lives better. That's the best way for uh, to move forward. But as you make people's lives better and you go to the middle class, they're gonna, we're going to require, there's going to be a greater need on a protein-based diet, right? So now you're having more people wanting protein-based diet, but at the same time, that's going to have a greater impact on food security. So increasing food production. So what do you do with it? So, um, the, and uh, so what we need to look at is, you know, should uh, alternative sources, as stated, uh, for feeding livestock, or do we look at uh, other sources uh, of, of protein? So these are all the dynamics that we have to work. Uh, do we have to work with? The other thing I think that very uh, useful uh, is as we deal with the food security crisis. 
uh, we need to build capacity in the nations that we're helping. Rather than the supply chain system that goes from the West and supporting vulnerable places. This is something that uh, our team has been working on at Global Affairs for the last probably six to eight months. And we're, once we have a plan in place, and when we say our plan, our pl it's not going to be a plan to say, here's our plan for the world. What it's going to be is, what can we contribute to, to, an, um, to a nation's plan? So we talked to the African Union about country plans and how can we can better support. Two things we need. One is, does a country have capacity to increase uh, food systems uh, and food production and so forth? But they also need good governance. And we have to be realistic about this. Not every government is, is there that's going to take advantage of this and, and look after its people. So we need to look at where nations that, that we can actually work with. So what gives me hope is that there's some very good work that's taking place with the multilateral banks, uh, research that's out there, but we need to bring things together in a way, and as I told my department, is let's, let's look at putting a plan together uh, and we build it as if our own citizens are starving. That's how we can actually do things. Out of desperation comes greater innovation. We've, we've seen this already. So that's what gives me hope is that we have really good people um, out there. Good, hard discussions are being had, and I'm the one of the first ones to openly admit, and I'm going to say this, and I, I, by the way, I've said this very publicly, we are at, using a baseball analogy, we're at strike two right now with the Global South. Strike one was COVID, where we vaccinated our population, the Global South got left behind. Uh, the war in Ukraine, and we and uh, we need to very strongly support uh, Ukraine in this because it has global implications. But at the same time, the Global South sees uh, the Western nations coming together to support um, a country in Europe. Well, what about all the other crises? So what we need to learn from those lessons, how can we apply from those lessons to other crises in other areas and uh, make people's lives better? How could we deal with the crisis within Rohingya differently? How do we deal with other crises uh, within uh, in Middle East and other places? So that's one thing that we have. Strike three for us will be the food security crisis if we don't do this well. Otherwise, we will lose the global south. And if we don't have them with us, we're not going to solve this uh, uh, solve this problem. So what gives me hope is the work that I've seen during my travels in the most difficult uh, areas, even in South Sudan. Right? South Sudan, where the peace agreement is about to expire next February, we have women entrepreneurship programs that have visited uh, who are doing research on agriculture and the food that, that they have grown that's feeding their village. right? And, and you can easily say, well, it's one village. Uh, what's, you know, what's a big deal? Well, it's one village that doesn't need, uh, that doesn't need support. But how, does that, how can that food, that excess food be sold? So that's one of the, I was really uh, heartened to the conversation that I had earlier today about how can we use, uh, you know, create systems, food system, financial systems within these countries to, inc um, uh, you know, to, great, uh, to build greater opportunities. So the point is, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there because I have faith within uh, some very good people who are out there. What we need to do is, is bring greater coordination to all this. Thank you for those very wise, pragmatic, and optimistic words, uh, ministers. So with that, uh, je voudrais remercier tous les participants ce soir à notre panel. Merci à vous tous dans l'audience de vous être joints à nous. Once again, this is a terrific way of celebrating 25 years of the Toronto uh, Centre. So, merci à tous. It's been a wonderful learning experience for me to wade through all of these topics. Bye-bye. Thank you. Merci. Mm -hmm.